Northview. It is an honor to be here, and I feel like I'm in the Coliseum, right? You ever watch the movie Gladiator? Like, what we do today echoes in eternity, right? I feel like I'm there. It is an honor to be here and a privilege uh, to get to be in this pulpit and to share with you on Father's Day. Men, this is our day. This is maybe the one 24-hour window we get to make demands we could never get away with, right? <laughs> and uh, we, we celebrate you men. Happy Father's Day. I am a father myself, and I think we have a, a family photo of us. This is my, my wife and four children. Uh, to speak of her first, it's clear, in every relationship, there is a settler and a reacher. I was praying for a Nissan, God gave me a Corvette. And uh, my wife, I believe, was praying for a F-150, God gave her a moped. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, this is us, we have four children, uh, 11, nine, eight, and then three. Had a little bit of a surprise. But that's what you get for going home for lunch on a Tuesday. Some of you won't get that until lunch on Tuesday. And others of you, you're not laughing maybe because your halo's too tight. You just gotta relax a little bit. And we are from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which up until 2020, was like, oh, I love Minneapolis. Now you say it and people are like, ooh, what is that like? Apparently Rock Bottom has a basement. <laughs> Anyone look at the last year and you, you almost felt like we were playing the game Jumanji? Like, is this happening? I felt like I was being grounded for everything I didn't get caught doing as a teenager. <laughs> All our vacations were canceled. We ended up having to take a trip from Lost Living Room to Porta Backyarda right? It's like, I got to go somewhere. And, uh, but it could be worse, right? It could be worse. Our, our grandparents were sent off to war. We were sent home to our couches. It could be worse. And even though it was a trying year for us as a city in Minneapolis, God was still faithful. Church still moves forward and the good news is still the good news. And um, so we bring you greetings from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I just got to say on the front end, uh, you guys are a remarkable church. Uh, I feel like sometimes in a position like this, my, my responsibility is to bring about some self-awareness because what you think is normal is not normal at all. In fact, some of you, you may need to go on a church appreciation tour to find out that what you get to experience every single week, it is outstanding. I mean, even watching that Dollar Club video, anyone else find themselves just caught up in their feels? I'm over there like emotional, like pull it together. It's, it's outstanding, your generosity, the movement that is known as Northview, your guys' ability to reach this community and have an impact not only in this state and not only within our nation, but around the world. It's outstanding and, and I applaud you guys and I certainly salute your pastor, Pastor Stephen Sandy. You guys are blessed with the best. You know that? <laughs> blessed with the best. It's easy being a guest speaker, but to do it every single week, week in and week out for over two decades, I mean, that's impressive. And uh, sir, I just thank you for giving guys like me a vision for the level of ministry 
and the greatness of what God can accomplish if you're just faithful. And uh, thank you for leading well. And again, can we just thank God for your pastor? <laughs> Outstanding. Well, today I wanna talk to you and I've titled today's message, Growing Up. Look at your neighbor and say, grow up. Which I feel like I just did someone a favor. You've been wanting to say it. Preacher just gave you permission to do so. Growing up is hard. You ever found that? Getting older is harder. The older I get, I am finding that I, I'm discovering muscles I didn't know I had. Not that I'm getting stronger, but that I'm getting sore. Like I didn't know I could have a pain in that place. And now my kids are making me see my age differently. I look at them and I see them getting older. I see them changing before my very eyes and I can't help but think, am I changing as quickly as they're changing? And now they're getting older, they're able to reflect my experience back to me. It comes with some commentary. Recently my, my daughter Presley turned three. We're celebrating her birthday and during the whole deal we started talking about Dad, what did you want for your birthday growing up? What were some of the things that you wished for? So I was starting to think of some of the iconic things that, that I put on my list. This is what I want for my birthday. And top of the list was a Sony Walkman. Come on, <laughs> 80s and 90s babies, if you grew up with a Sony Walkman. <laughs> some of you young people are like, what is he talking about? I'm gonna inform you. Back in the day, we first started out with cassettes. Mine actually didn't have a fast forward button, only a rewind button. Remember how you had to eject it, turn it around, put it in, rewind it, eject it, turn it around, put it back in? We never got to listen to a song from the actual beginning. You would just land somewhere in the first verse, but it would suffice. And then Sony came out with a Walkman that played CDs compact disc, anti-shock absorption, right? So I'm telling my kids, you could listen to music. It was amazing. They're looking at me, they're scratching my heads and their heads and my daughter says, so was it, was it waterproof? So no, it wasn't waterproof. My son says, well, did it have Wi-Fi? No, it didn't have Wi-Fi. My next kid says, how about Bluetooth? Another one comes back with, did it have any apps? And I was getting frustrated. You wanna find yourself annoyed with the next generation? <laughs> and I said, no, it didn't have all those things. My daughter says, I just don't get it. And I'm like, what's not to get? It's in the title, Walk Man. In the 90s, we could walk and listen to music at the same time. Folks would be in their cul-de-sac holding a salad plate, like, but it just, it was the deal, right? And then one of my kids says, Dad, what else was it like in the 1900s? <laughs> you ever heard the statement, hurting people hurt people? I was offended, so they picked weeds all afternoon. <laughs> Growing up, it's, it's hard. It's hard in many facets, and I find that it is also difficult when it comes to growing up spiritually. Like, how do we do this? You ever felt clunky in your faith? What is my approach to faith? How do I understand what God is trying to accomplish in and through my life? And today, I, I kind of want to lean into that so maybe you would have a vision or an understanding as to what God is trying to accomplish in and through your life. 
And on the front end, this is gonna, this is gonna come with some information, maybe a little heady, uh, but I think it'll serve you well. And you should know that your life of faith breaks down into three stages. And the first stage is justification, which is freedom from the penalty of sin. Justification. And I mean, it's this remarkable idea that Jesus steps into our shoes also that we could have the opportunity to step into his. Jesus takes on our death also that we could take on his life. And in some brilliant fashion, Jesus takes two pieces of wood in the form of a cross and he bridges the gap between us and our heavenly father. I mean, it's fascinating, it is brilliant because on the cross, Jesus somehow managed to punish sin, yet preserve the sinner. I mean, at some point, our brokenness had to be addressed. And God figured out a way to punish sin and preserve the sinner. I mean, that is outstanding that it is in Christ that we have this remarkable grace. It is in Christ that we have this abundant grace. And some of you may need to be reminded or maybe told for the first time, God's not holding out on his grace. So maybe you should stop holding on to your shame. There, there's something so liberating when you discover, wait a second, in Christ I now have freedom from the penalty of sin. I mean, that is outstanding. To be in Christ is to be justified, which is kind of like a redneck word. Anyone familiar with some redneck words? Like mayonnaise is a redneck word. You could say, Man, there's a lot of people in here today. <laughs> Justified's a redneck word. Because when you give your life to Christ, you are in Christ. That's what the Bible says. In the same way, we are in this building. So when people drive by, they don't see us. They see the building. We are in the building. Well, when you are in Christ, when God looks upon your life, he sees Jesus. When he looks upon my life, he sees Jesus. He views me justified, never sinned. Justified. It's a redneck word, right? But it is fascinating that is in Christ, I now have freedom from the penalty of sin. And this triggers the next stage, which is sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. You wake up one day and realize, hey, I gave my life to Christ, but there are still some things that trip me up, still some things that entice me, still some things that are tempting. There are some things in my flesh and in my character that I'm still working out. And what you should know is where justification happens in a moment, sanctification will take the rest of your life. And it's recognizing over time, as I, as I grow in my faith and as I stay in step with my Savior, over time, something happens in my character. My posture changes. I, I mean, I take on a new demeanor. I suddenly have different desires. I make different decisions. My life is anchored to a new devotion. I am heading in a different direction. And the things that once used to influence me and the things that once used to trip me up they no longer carry the weight that they once did. I'm, I'm growing up in my faith. That's what sanctification is. And you should know that 
God is more concerned with the strength of your growth than he is with the speed of your growth. Sometimes we get this wrong, church, in, in circles of Christians where we try to almost make environments like this into a spiritual microwave, where we try to rush the process for others, or maybe we take on a pressure ourselves that we're not meant to carry. God is not in a hurry with you. Makes me think of my daughter, Presley, who, like I said, she just turned three, and I'm loving this stage of life. Anyone else, you just love having little children? And I can't wait for the day to see her accomplish all the things God's gonna do in her life. I look forward to seeing her play sports. I look forward to seeing her thrive through school. Someday get a degree, launch into a career. I look forward to seeing her dreams come to pass and, and her thriving as a young independent woman. I, I look forward to those moments. But I'm loving having a three-year-old. Like, yeah, that's gonna be amazing. But I love this stage of life I have with my daughter. Because here's the reality. At some point, you pick your kid up and you put him down and you never pick him up again. Which I have a feeling we're gonna walk out into the lobby and see someone carrying a 27-year-old. Like, <laughs> it's my baby, right? Like, you don't pick him up again. I, yes, I look forward to seeing all that God's gonna do in your life, but I'm in no hurry for this moment to pass. And some of you should know that your heavenly father is loving this season of life with you. I mean, he's loving this stage. And he is so involved and so intimately connected and so thoughtful and intentional. And he treasures this season that he has with you. God's not in a hurry. You don't need to be in a hurry. And it's just recognizing I get to live daily in step with my God. He's not trying to get me off his to-do list. And if I'm not dead, God's not done. There's more to him that I can discover. See, that's what trips us up sometimes is we, we lack an appetite or we lack a vision for more of God. We show up to churches looking for enough Jesus to be informed, but not enough Jesus to be transformed. We show up to churches looking for advice, not an adventure. But sanctification, it's an invitation to be a part of an adventure. And it's growing in stature. And then it comes to the final stage, which is glorification, freedom from the presence of sin. At some point, we all meet our maker. At some point, we step into eternity. Scripture says, where there is no evil, there is no pain, there is no sorrow, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. I mean, you and I live in eternal perfection and harmony with our Heavenly Father. That is outstanding. But again, justification, glorification, and I know it's a lot of information, they happen in a moment. Sanctification takes the rest of your life. Justification and glorification, God does for you. Sanctification, you do it with God. I mean, this is what makes the gospel so outstanding. This is what sets the gospel apart from any other major world religion. In fact, I think when you look at the criteria 
for what constitutes a world religion, I actually don't think the gospel fits. Every other major world religion has a, has a leader who came saying, hey, I know the way. The gospel is the only community of faith that says, no, our leader came claiming, I am the way. Every other major world religion is doing whatever they can to somehow get to God. Christianity is the only faith that says, no, our God came to us. This is radically different. And my challenge for you is don't settle for religion in substitute of a relationship. You see, religion says, I made a mistake. My dad's gonna kill me. The gospel says, I made a mistake. I need to call my dad. I mean, there's something about living in this grace that we get to run into our heavenly father's arms. This is what makes the good news, good news, amen? And what you find in scripture is people would bump into this and it would radically change their life. And what I love about reading the Bible is it's not just the retelling of a story. It's the reliving of a story. That the same God that did that can do it again right here and right now. In scripture, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Peter. And if you never met Peter, you should get to know Peter. He is that friend that makes everybody feel better about themselves. Anyone else got that friend? If you don't, you're that friend. You just boost everybody's confidence. In Minnesota, we have this term called Minnesota nice. It's not nice at all. It's basically being passive aggressive and offering backhanded compliments. One Sunday, a lady came forward after service and she said, I just love attending church here. Every single week, you remind me, God truly can use anybody. <laughs> when I first became a pastor, I was talking to my father about it. And he said, you know what, son? As long as you preach from your brokenness, you'll never run out of material. <laughs> 17 years in, he's right, you know? I feel like I'm cut from the same cloth as Peter. And Peter, at times he was clumsy in his faith. At times he was miscalculated. At times he put his foot in his mouth. One time, Peter tried to correct Jesus. Which just, you should know. If you ever get in an argument with Jesus and you win, you lose. <laughs> Peter corrects Jesus and Jesus turns around to Peter and he says, get behind me. Come on church folks. Satan. I mean, Peter was clumsy in his faith. Yet God used him still in remarkable ways because here's the beauty of grace. Even when we get it wrong, God still gets it right. Even when we get it wrong, God still gets it right. And so God would go on to use Peter in profound ways. So much so, Peter would get to the end of his road and he would start documenting some of his experience. He would write letters like First and Second Peter and he would include some narrative in there. I mean, he would include some personal testimony in there. He'd throw a little bit of theology in there. He would try to pass on to the next generation what God did in his life. Starts out in First Peter chapter one and he introduces this idea that we have a living hope. He's saying, guys, I witnessed it. That the, the man who I was following as my teacher, the one I thought was our Messiah, 
He died and I was devastated. Yet he came back to life. Like this hope we have in Christ is alive. It's active. That you should know that the hope we subscribe to as followers of Christ is not some archaic idea. It's not some urban legend tied to some remote region. That you don't have to go to Galilee or a town called Jerusalem to discover this hope. No, we have a living hope and our hope is locally grown. That you can experience the same God that touched Peter's life right here in the beautiful state of Indiana. Anyone else got some locally grown hope? It's like God's doing some things in my life. I've encountered God in my life in this season. So he introduces this idea that we have a living hope. And then chapter two, verse one, he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I wonder how many of you can truly say, you know, I've tasted that the Lord is good. I know without a shadow of a doubt the goodness and I've seen it on display in my life. Growing up, I always heard this statement, the proof is in the pudding. I'm an argumentative person at times. I disagreed with the statement. I don't think the proof is in the pudding. I think the proof in the pudding is in the tasting. Chocolate pudding looks like a lot of things. <laughs> it's not until you taste it that you're like, it's pudding. Like, it tastes like pudding, right? And Peter's saying, hey, when you encounter this Jesus, you start to realize, yeah, there is no comparison. There really is no substitute or alternative. This God is good. And every single time I step onto a platform, my whole agenda is to get someone in the room to bump into the reality that the God that we serve is bigger than you think. He's brighter than you think, and he's better than you think. He's bigger than you think. He's brighter than you think. He is better than you think. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray that some of you will lean in and taste the goodness of our God. He goes on to tell us in verse four, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's what I love about your church, connecting real people with real problems to a real God. That your church exists to get shame off of people, not to place more shame on the people. And that's what this verse is saying. So he ends in verse seven and he says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He wants us to understand that based on your beliefs, you will develop one of two realities. I personally believe, take it or leave it, that the most important thing about a person is what they believe about Jesus. 
I think at some point we all step into the biggest defining moment of our life and the number one question is, what did you do or make of Jesus? And in it, Peter wants us to know there are some of you who believe and this is your reality. And there are some of you who don't believe and this is your reality. As we all know, life is, life is trying. Life is difficult. Life comes with pain. It comes with predicaments and problems. Comes with some confusion. But know this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, life as we know it is as close to hell as you'll ever be. Now, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, life as we know it is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. Now, it's important to note that doesn't make us as Christians better than anybody. That just makes us better off. We're not better than anybody. But because of the good news and the grace of God that is at work within our life, we are simply better off. Grace doesn't give us the opportunity to look down on people. Grace gives us the obligation to look out for people. So even as a pastor, to some of you who are not a Christian, maybe watching online, I'm not better than any of you. I'm just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where I found the crumbs. I mean, this God, he's, he's outstanding. I mean, his work in your life will leave you perplexed and amazed that you can't help but give him praise for the uniqueness and the wonder of who he is. And in this, Peter, he goes down the list of all these metaphors, which I love the metaphors in scripture. I think when you change the metaphor, it changes your imagination. I think much of what God is trying to do at times in scripture is to stretch our thinking. He's a bigger deal than you think. And maybe you need to open your mind and stretch the horizon of your belief system. This God is a big deal. I wonder how many people would make God feel claustrophobic. He is a big deal. And so he starts out and he says, you're like newborn babies. That when you first give your life to Christ, you are in this infancy in your faith. And scripture kind of splits some hairs at times. At times it talks about being childish. And at times it talks about being childlike. It tells us not to be childish, but it encourages us to be childlike. Childish is to say, hey, put off the things that are unproductive in your life. Put off the things that are robbing you of your joy, robbing you of your peace, hindering your potential, stealing your purpose. Put off the things that are creating emotional and psychological turmoil. Put off the things that are being disruptive to your relationship. Those are childish things. But don't lose your childlike wonder. Don't lose the, the audacity to believe God for the impossible. Don't lose the thrill of following him and leaning into your heavenly father. So he says there's a difference, right? And you, you grow out of, you grow out of those things. And then he goes into these other ones and he starts out and he says, eventually you become a spiritual house. What does that mean? He's saying before you know it, you, you begin to inhabit the presence of God in your life and you begin to facilitate the spirit of God and the promptings of God, before you know it, you can sense what God is doing in your life. Before you know it, you can discern God's will. Which the good news about this point is I get to breeze past it. 
Because my man, Pastor Steve, knocked it out of the park and did the heavy lifting last week. Which if you missed last week's message, you have to listen to it. Because at the end, Pastor Steve gave us six questions as to how we all can better discern God's will for our life. And discernment's a tricky thing, but it is something that as you grow up, you gain a handle. Recently, my daughter Riley came home and she was asking my wife about some things she heard her friends say. And she asked her, she said, mom and dad, is that, is that a bad word? My wife said, yeah, that's, that's a cuss word. And Riley said, how do you know which is a cuss word? How do you know it's a bad word? And so Kristen was talking her through this and they started talking about conviction, which I know is not a popular topic, but church, I would rather my sin come with conviction than my sin become a condition. Hello, right? Like I would just, God say, hey, that ain't working. You can be better than that, right? And so she's talking to her about this and Kristen at one point said, you know, babe, conviction, sometimes, sometimes you'll just get a yucky feeling. I mean, that one's not right. A few months later, we're hanging out with some friends and their mom's in town. And the mom goes up and introduces her kid, herself to my kids. And she says her name to Riley and Riley goes, ooh, don't say that. And um, she says, well, what do you mean don't say that? She said, that's a cuss word. She's like, that's not a cuss word, that's my name. And she's like, well, it's making me feel yucky inside. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't always come immediate. You have to grow into it, right? But you start to develop this ability to discern some things. The more you're disciplined in God's word, you discover God's ways. The more you discover God's ways, you can discern God's will. You start to look at situations and think, well, God wouldn't want me to do that. Doesn't align with his ways. Like Pastor Steve said, there's the general will of God and there's the special will of God. And until you master the general will, you're gonna have a hard time discerning the special will. So he talks about this spiritual house. And then from there he says, and you're also a, a royal priesthood, which would have confused the original audience. Wait a second. How are we all now priests? Up until that point, church as they knew it was a spectator sport. Individuals would show up and they would watch the priest do God's work. But Peter's saying no, because of what Christ did on the cross and the Holy Spirit coming to us on Pentecost, we all now have the Spirit of God at work in our life. We all now have a priestly mantle, meaning we don't get to spectate we get to participate. We get to be a part of God's story. So you go from discerning God's will to doing God's work. Before you know it, God starts to utilize you to have an impact, which is the goal as Christians. Not to be impressive, but to be impactful. To live in a way that God uses us as instruments of change and agents of hope and, and people who bring about love and grace in a world that desperately desperately needs it. You have to do God's work. And again, this is clunky, but you grow into it. Ever felt incompetent in your faith, right? It's like, I, I know I'm supposed to be generous, but Nordstrom's just keeps tripping me up, right? I know I'm supposed to be loving, but Facebook just gives me some triggers. It makes me wanna respond in harsh ways. I have to grow into this. There's four levels of a person's competency. Here comes some more information. You ready for it? Level one is unconscious incompetence. 
A newborn baby has no idea that they can't read, write, or ride a bike. They're unaware of it. They're unaware of their inability. They're unconscious incompetence. Second level is conscious incompetence. Before they start to know, hey, those words, are, they're actually meaning something. These people are talking. They're transmitting communication and information. Hey, I want to learn how to ride a bike. I don't know how to do that right now. I can't read that book. I'm conscious, but I'm still lacking some competence. Then you get to this stage where it's conscious competence. Before you know it, it takes a little bit of effort, takes some discipline, takes some willpower and some focus, but you can do it. And if you trust the process, you will land at a place of unconscious competence. Before you know it, you don't even have to think about it. You don't have to plan for it. It doesn't exhaust your willpower. It just happens. Over time, something in your nature changes and your instinct becomes a reflection of God. It's unconscious competence. That is growing in your faith. But then he lands with this last one. He says, but then you become a living sacrifice. You become a living sacrifice. I, uh, I struggle with grammar. I didn't realize I struggled with grammar until I signed to a publisher and joined a PhD program. And now I have my advisor and my editor saying, you don't know how to talk right. You're, you misuse words all the time. You don't have someone in their family who just doesn't use words correctly. My grammar is a work in progress. So I find myself frustrated because I'm like, which one is it? Is it ironic or is it a coincidence? Are we composing something or comprising something? Am I nauseous or am I nauseated? Is it fewer or is it less, right? It is maddening further or farther. And words are weird and words are hard. And sometimes we use them incorrectly. And when Peter says sacrifice, I can't help but wonder, if he, is he misusing the word? I think when we think sacrifice, we think giving up something you love for something you love more. I agree to that. But here's my question for you, church. If what you give is less than what you gain, is that truly a sacrifice? If what you give is less than what you gain, that's not a sacrifice. That's a profit. At one point, Jesus is speaking in his hometown and he leaves without doing any miracles and there's a statement that says he was a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, without honor in his own home. And I wonder, does he remain a prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, without honor in his own home? As you grow up in your faith, you not only discern God's will, you not only do God's work, eventually you discover God's worth. You're like, this isn't a sacrifice. This is a prophet. I will give my entire life to this Jesus. Makes me think of going to Costco. There's always that question the cashier asks you when you get to the front. Did you find everything you were looking for? I'm like, no, I wasn't looking for any of this. <laughs> I showed up to get two chicken pot pies. I'm leaving with a pressure washer, three pillows, a stack of coloring books, and six months of strawberry jam. I wasn't looking for any of this. 
That'll happen if you follow Jesus. You'd be like, man, I'll be honest. I just showed up for the free childcare. And then I bumped into some grace. Then I bumped into some peace. Then I bumped into some strength. Then I bumped into community. And before you know it, I didn't show up looking for this. I didn't know that he was a, a way maker, a miracle worker, promise keeper. I didn't even know that. But the more I get to discover him, the more I am amazed by the magnitude and the magnificence and the brilliance of our God. You start to bump into things in scripture and you start to realize he is the alpha and the omega, meaning he starts and finishes everything. Amen. You start to recognize he's the lamb of God, the lion of Judah. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's my rock, he's my redeemer, he's my shield, he's my reward. I mean, his integrity is impeccable and he makes 5,000 promises to me in the word of God. He's a good shepherd. I mean, he is a good friend. I think that's why the hymnist said, what a friend we have in Jesus. You start to realize, oh my goodness, I had a bad appraisal. This God, he's bigger than I thought. He's brighter than I thought. And church, he's better than I thought. See, true maturity is not just discerning God's will and it's not just doing God's work. It's discovering God's worth. And I end with this. Jesus once told a parable. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man walking through a field and he finds a treasure, sells everything he has and he buys the field. The original hearers of that would have been confused because there's a public policy similar to the one we had on the playground as kindergartners. Finders keepers, losers weepers. You found the treasure. You don't have to buy the field. To which Jesus would have said, that's the point. Because of where he, what he found, where he found it, suddenly his appreciation for the field skyrocketed. I think this guy understood, there's no way I could ever afford this treasure. But I can afford to treasure it. And that is preaching to the choir for some of you. This church is a beacon of hope and inspiration for our entire nation. It's because some of you found a treasure here you can never afford, but you've decided, you know what? I can afford to treasure it. And Northview, don't take your foot off the gas, amen. Can I pray with you? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. Even though it's not efficient. God, you're not in a hurry. God, so help us just slow down and enjoy the journey that we have with you. Thank you for sending your son to die on a cross. To experience a vicious death. Also that we could experience a victorious life. God, thank you for being bigger and brighter and better than anything we could ever comprehend. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.